I'm Lindsay Berra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these Gurus editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. This is part two of a special two-part episode with Dr. Mita Singh, a physician and psychiatrist who specializes in the science of sleep. Dr. Singh works with numerous NFL, MLB, NHL, NBA, Olympic, and college sports teams, providing evidence-based guidance to help them optimize sleep to maximize performance. However, Dr. Singh's insight is also valuable for weekend warriors, average Joes, and anyone who just wants a better night of sleep. So obviously also with the professional athletes, jet lag and time changes is is a big deal. How do you counsel people to deal with uh, time differences like that? So for your audience, let's describe what jet lag is. Mm -hmm. Remember we talked about your circadian clock. Mm -hmm. So I'm on based on the East Coast. So on a daily basis, my circadian rhythms get synchronized to the East Coast time because of exposure to bright light, et cetera. If I took a plane, if I took a jet and I rapidly crossed time zones and I got to London, which is five hours ahead, for the first few days, my clock, which is set on East Coast time, is scrambling to get in sync with the new time zone. And that is causing all those effects of fatigue and tiredness and difficulty sleeping in the new, at the new time zone, difficulty staying awake at the new time zone, tummy upset, et cetera. So that's what jet lag is. And we know that we know that any time that teams have to cross time zones, it takes a while to get adjusted to it. In fact, there was this in Major League Baseball, there was a study and they looked at it was 20 years of data and they looked at East Coast teams whenever they came back from spending 10 days on the West Coast or however long, because they're now well adjusted to the West Coast. They typically lost that first home game if the other team was coming from the East Coast because huh. they lose home field advantage Yeah, because they're out of sync. And again, in baseball, we know that if you, the more zones you cross, the higher your chances of losing. And East Coast teams are always at a disadvantage. So when, if you leave here and when you, when it's, and you go from here to California and you're playing 7 p.m. their time, that means your game is beginning at 10 o'clock yep. East Coast time. So, you know, that becomes a problem. And again, it's all a matter of what you can do leading up to that, you know, you want to make sure you get onto that flight well-rested. One of the ways that I tell people is that if I knew, for example, if I was going to be on call on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the worst thing I could do is not get enough sleep Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Because then I would start out feeling my with my pot of sleep half empty. So try to get more sleep while you're at home, get on the plane well-rested, and then use strategic, again, light exposure, et cetera, and, you know, timed naps, timed meals, et cetera, to get adjusted to the new time zone. So a lot of athletes, I think, are taking red eyes post-game and flying, which also, which makes that adjustment so much harder, but also because they're not probably not sleeping on the plane. They're probably grazing, eating on the plane. Um, They're playing that, you know, they're playing cards in the game. Cards, which also keeps you awake and requires mental focus (laughs) unless you want to lose a lot of money. So when you give these talks to the teams on how to optimize their sleep, what do you tell them to do about red eye flights heading into a day where they might have to really perform the next day? So hopefully the team is, asking me in advance before they've already bought the flights. So oftentimes there is some leeway in maybe moving the timing of the flight, right? So whenever possible, whenever possible, and it's less likely in baseball as compared to 
the NHL and the NBA. Always try to spend the nights wherever you're playing mm-hmm. and then leave the next day after 10 or 11 a.m. so that you can get a good night of sleep before you even climb, uh, get on the plane. But beyond that, I will tell you, they're never going to get ideal sleep. So the way that w- what you do is that you try to work with incremental improvements. And there's this great study. It was done, forgotten which team, in, in an MLB team during spring training. All they made them do is spend half an hour or 45 minutes extra in bed. Mm-hmm. And that showed an improvement in their performance and the way that they felt the next day. So although ideally you want, this is where you want to be, but if you can play catch up by taking a, a nap, if you can try to make sure that you get go to bed half an hour earlier or do other things, that might help. But oftentimes, especially in baseball, it is all a matter of banking sleep when you can. So make sure you get well rested when you have the opportunity to sleep and then playing catch up when after you're done with your travel. Unfortunately, because there's some limitations and those limitations are not about to change until, and there have been improvements. I mean, you know, they've added days, there are more off days than they were while mm-hmm. when your grandfather played. But also earlier, till about 10 or 15 years ago, people would use greenies, which are amphetamines, mm-hmm. and they were perfectly legal. Yeah. And that it would mask the effects of poor sleep and jet lag. People aren't using greenies as much anymore, but they are using a lot of pre-workouts and caffeinated yes. beverages, which yes. also goes to affect their mm-hmm. sleep later on. And I think everybody on earth can relate to having too much, many cups of coffee and not being able to fall asleep. How, right. how do you counsel people to manage their caffeine intake? So first of all, it's important to know that caffeine takes about 15 to 25 minutes to take effect. And then it's half-life in most people is five to six hours, which means if you drink a cup of coffee or you drink a lot of caffeinated beverages before your 7 p.m. game, by the time 11 o'clock rolls around, half of it is still in your system. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand that. And then you have to take it. And that if you drink it on a regular basis, you can develop tolerance. Then, then, then there's a group of people who are rapid metabolizers so they can get out of their system early, et cetera. It may not have that much effect. Again, it's, you know, you give people information as a group but then you have to talk to people on an individual basis to understand where exactly where they're at and then give them advice based on, on their particular issue or how they're coming. So, you know, I, I remember, I always remember this story because what, and this happens. So this was an NHL player and sleeps really well all throughout. Right. And just after game days, every, anytime after game day, difficulty falling asleep. Well, never drinks caffeine. But on the day of the game, he takes a two and a half hour nap in the afternoon, which takes a large bite out of your sleep drive, which is supposed to help you sleep later at night mm-hmm. and then drinks, you know, all these energy drinks. Well, then the realistic expectation is he's not going to sleep. And so he has to, you know, he has to understand that he's not going to sleep until later that night. And that will actually help in him having a more realistic expectations of how he is going to sleep and a better relationship with his sleep. Instead of you know? being angry about not falling exactly. asleep right instead away. Of, he... Instead of saying, oh, I can't believe it. I can't fall asleep. I have to have a pill. Well, no, you are you don't have that much of sleep, right? You've drunk all this caffeine. On that, those nights, you're going to go to bed late. It's okay because the next two days, you can make sure you get good enough sleep. Because the first conversation I had with him is, will you reduce the amount of caffeine you drink? He's like, yeah, you can take it away from my dead hands because (laughs) it helps me play really well. And I understand that. So then the compromise is in having 
realistic expectations of what your sleep is going to do. Then, of course, you know, then I'm not surprised that if you tell me, well, the only way I can sleep then is if I take a pill to help me sleep. But yes, because you're knocking yourself out because you, there's no other way for you to normally fall asleep. So that guy who, if we accept the fact that he's not going to fall asleep until hours after the game yes. because he's got himself so up. So say, say his game ends at 1030 by the time he gets home and he's eaten, it's 1115 or so, and he's not going to fall asleep until 3 a.m. In those four hours between 11 and 3 a.m., when he probably wants to pass the time playing video games or watching a movie, is that the best thing to do? And no. So he has to build a good winding down schedule for sure. And video games are distracting. They are not relaxing. And, you know, with video games, just the way that they're built, they're, you know, you want to do better. You, you know, they're, <laughs> they get you involved. And I always tell people that the problem is that the, that, that player is playing with other players. He's not playing alone out yeah. there. So that's the other thing. So, yeah, and, and that's where education comes in about how to build that winding down schedule. And at what point you have to put away that video game and, and you know, maybe set an alarm rather than setting an alarm in the morning, setting an alarm in the evening, telling yourself that, okay, or that night that, okay, now I'm going to relax. And this is a bunch of tools I have in my arsenal. So, you know, I'm going to take a hot bath. I'm going to come out. I'm going to do some stretching exercises. Maybe I'm going to do meditation. Maybe I'm going to read or, you know, listen to a podcast or something quiet and relaxing that will allow sleep to happen. Now with the note that none of that is going to work if he tries to go to bed at 11. Yeah. Cause it won't. But if you have a real, right, if you have a realistic expectation of exactly when sleep is going to happen, if you know when it is, then you're, you can fall asleep. And the problem is that when, oftentimes when I see athletes or even like, even like CEOs, et cetera, they've, they've done all that. They, you know, they've, they've listened, you know, unless you're living in a, under a rock, you know, you should, your bedroom should be cold, all that stuff. So they've done all these things. They're completely frustrated and they're like, well, I, I just can't fall asleep. And it really is that poor relationship that they have developed to sleep. So naturally sleep should happen without effort and it should be flexible. But when you start paying attention to your sleep in response to an occasional night of poor sleep and you, and you become intentional about, Oh, you know what? I can't fall asleep. I don't fall asleep at 11 o'clock. So why don't I try going to bed at nine and see if sleep's going to happen, which is like the exactly wrong thing to do. Cause would you ever go to a dining table and say, well, I'm not hungry, but I'm going to go there two hours ahead <laughs> to see if I'm hungry. Well, of course you're going to get frustrated sitting there doing nothing. So, and that's what happens, you know, or they start paying attention to the sleep. Well, typically people will say, you know, they'll go to bed and good sleepers are all alike. They go to bed, wake up in the morning, no recollection about how they slept. Also, don't really think about sleep. But if you're mm -hmm. a bad sleeper, that's becomes your life. That's all you're thinking about, right? So you have an occasional night of poor sleep and you say, well, I'm going to look really bad. I'm probably, my eyes are probably going to be puffy. I'm not going to be on my game. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be off kilter. And then the more you stress out about it, you're going to switch from, I didn't sleep very well last night. I'm going to be off my game. And that very thought is very stressful. When athletes get off of their game because they haven't had enough sleep, what are the first things to go when you're tired? Is it physical? Is it mental? Is it both? So that's a very good question. So I want to differentiate what I just said, which is what I'm saying is that when people have insomnia or difficulty sleeping, they tend to 
overestimate the effect that sleep is going to have on their performance the next day. But on the other hand, we know that sleep has an effect on your reaction time. So one of the first things that happens is that your reaction time slows down. You become inaccurate. But most importantly, one of the the parts of the brain that gets preferentially impaired when you get less sleep is your prefrontal cortex, which is the brain that is just behind your forehead. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the part of the brain that's responsible for good judgment, multitasking, good decision-making, all the things that you really, really need while your emotional brain becomes overly emotional and active. Mm -hmm. So your decision-making becomes impaired because your brain's now overly emotional and your judgment is impaired. And that really affects everything when it comes to a player. Because at one level, a player is doing something based on practice, but they don't have to think, right? And so if you're slower or if you're less accurate, you're making these errors in which you may not be getting the ball there or you may not get to the ball on time. But then because your judgment is impaired, you're thinking that you're going to do something, but you're, especially in the split second decision judgment, that gets impaired. So now you're making these intentional errors without realizing it, which is why getting less sleep, you know, increases the risk of injuries. It's because of the fact that they're taking riskier decisions, they're slower and less accurate. And because their judgment is impaired, they're not realizing that they're taking riskier decisions. Wow. The injury perspective too, that also does having, have something to do with actually physically where you don't, not enough sleep doesn't give your muscles time to repair. Yes. Is that true? Right, yeah. right, right. So, so far we are talking about how sleep is responsible or poor sleep is responsible for the injuries. But then to think about recovery from sleep, mm-hmm. uh, from, from injury and sleep is really, really important. So growth hormone is secreted during your sleep. Testosterone, if you get less sleep, is not secreted enough. And your muscle, it's while it's inactive during your sleep that it is, uh, you know, recruiting all these stem cells to come to that place of injury and do that stuff and get you up and functioning well and, you know, back so that the repair can happen. So yeah, so sleep is really, really important for that too. It reduces inflammation. So it helps with that. It helps. I always tell people that the biggest issue people have with at the Olympics is catching a cold. Because mm-hmm. if you catch the cold before the biggest game of your life, well, you're not going to be on top of a game. And we know that poor sleep impairs immunity. Mm-hmm. So, can you use naps to catch up on that kind of stuff? Do you get to the states of sleep you need to be in yes. to do all those good things in a 30 minute nap? Yes. Yeah, well, so naps are great for playing catch up or for in preparation for like a big game, et cetera. So when we say seven to nine hours of sleep is what adults need, if you can't get it all in one night, getting it in the form of a nap is fine too. So if you if you think about that, those sleep cycles we talked about, mm-hmm. and if you fall asleep, there's something called a NASA nap or a power nap, which is mm-hmm. you know 15 to 20 minutes and you get a little bit of N1 stage, maybe N2 a little bit and very refreshing. You know, it takes a, a bite out of your sleep drive. It sort of is... It gives you enough energy to get going for the next three, four hours. 30 minutes or 30 to 35 minutes, you have a little bit more N2 sleep. And then, you know, that granddaddy nap is the full sleep cycle, which is approximately 90 minutes. And then you get all the stages of sleep and, you know, you feel good. The only two things I would say is, number one is 
the timing is important. So you want to take a nap in the mid-afternoon, right around the time when you're tired. So let's say you probably have a time in the, in the afternoon where you feel a little more tired. Do you know when it is? Probably about four o'clock. Yeah. So that's between three and four. Maybe that's the time. For me, it's between one and three in the afternoon. So that's the time when I'm more tired and that's the time I would time my nap. And I tell people don't sleep within three hours of actual game time because you don't, sometimes you wake up, you're groggy and you don't want that to be interfering with actual game time. So interesting. You were mentioning before that when you're managing things like jet lag and changing time zones, and even if you have to switch from spring training to playing night games, you can kind of uh, coach yourself with strategic light and eating and, and schedules. How, yeah. how do you do that? And is, is the light, are you talking about just going out in the sun? How do you actually do that? So the timing, so whenever we, whenever we talk about light and how it affects your circadian clock, there are a few things. Number one, so the brighter the lights, the more blue-green spectrum in the light so the brighter the light, the wavelength of the light is, is important. So blue-green is a stronger signal to your circadian clock as compared to the yellow-red, the red part of the light. And the stronger the light, the long, stronger the lux. So 10,000 lux is better than 100 lux. Mm-hmm. And then the timing is important because the timing is based on where your circadian clock is, right? So I want to, so it's, timing is everything, let's say. So I'm going to give you an example. So if I was going to bed, if normally I went to bed, let's take you as an example. You go to bed at 11, you wake up at seven in the morning. If you get exposed to bright light between seven and 8.30 in the morning, you're going to start going to bed early and wake up earlier. So it's it's going to make it. But if you if you get exposed to bright light between say three and 4.30 in the morning, you're going to become more of a night owl. Mm-hmm. So it, it depends on its relationship to your circadian clock. So let's take an, an MLB player who goes to bed at one and likes to wake up at 10 or 11. For them, if you expose them to bright light at, so I told you seven to eight in the morning will make you more of a morning person, right? Mm-hmm. But if I told that player that you should expose yourself to bright light at seven to eight in the morning, it would be at the wrong time. Yeah because of that circadian clock is, is set at a different time. That's why timing is so important. And that's why timing has to be individualized. So right now there is some work, that, so there's some data in which, you know, at some point people might be able to tell where their circadian clock is, but even a simple questionnaire, even a sleep diary can give you fairly good estimate of where it is. And so we can make recommendations based on that. And that, that the blue green light that we want, like, so it can be detrimental blue green lights coming out of your television, your phone and your laptop. And at nighttime, if you are watching them, that might be something that keeps yes. you awake. But when you want to be exposed to it, to change your rhythms a bit, do you want laptop computer light or do you want sunlight or does it not you matter? Want, you, you would prefer sunlight, but what if you're in an area where you can't get sun, you know, if, or if you're inside and then there are light boxes that are available that you can use specifically for this. And they, you know, it's kind of, it's a strong light that comes out. And I want to make sure. So I want to, so light at night is bad, not just because of the light, but it's also what you're doing on that device. I can tell you if people are, they're doing homework, they'll fall asleep. Playing a video game, not as much. No. So it, it, it also depends on what the interaction is and, you know, how they're reacting to it. And of course, 
you know, so night owls are more sensitive to night light as compared to morning people. So there's, there's a lot of individual elements that come into play. And a lot of teams I know are giving all of their players blue light glasses and such now, which I would imagine would be great if you're just sort of like reading a book or something. But if yeah. it is a stimulating activity that you're doing, do the blue yeah. light glasses work as well? Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> okay. It's so no. funny. Are there certain natural supplements that you recommend for sleep or to help people wind down? Well, so typically not. There, there are some that have some data. So there's some research that tart cherry juice Mm-hmm. is effective. The data on magnesium is sort of, you know, both good or bad. People use melatonin all the time. And I will tell you that I'm typically careful with what the recommendation is. I always tell players that if you think you need a pill or a supplement of some kind to help you fall asleep, you should get evaluated to find out what, what's going on. Right. So, so you can take, drink tart cherry juice and then play a video game at the same place. Yeah. Completely ineffective. So, yeah. It's so interesting. I know and a lot of the teams really do like tart cherry juice. I yes. take some tart cherry in a capsule form and I do think it helps me sleep a little bit. But if I take melatonin, mm-hmm. I cannot get out of bed in the morning. I feel like someone mm-hmm. stapled me to the mattress. So I think that's something that's very individual as well. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. They talk about consistent bedtime yes. and wake up time. And obviously that is very difficult with it's athletes whose schedule are, are changing. Right. But so the consistent thing is optimal, but if you can't be consistent, you right. can kind of trick yourself with the light and the food. and the well, So I don't want to use the word trick yourself. Trick. Okay. Yeah. The reason I don't want to do that is because data shows that when you do this on a consistent basis, it does have detrimental side effects. Okay. So there are irreversible effects on your cardiometabolic health. If you do this in which, you know, on the weekdays you go to bed at say 11 and wake up at seven and every weekend, if you go to bed at two in the morning and sleep till noon, it is bad for you. But then you have to kind of live within the constraints of, you know, what their schedule is. And, and nothing is important. This is really relevant, I think, to college sports. Because college athletes, you know, all through the, the work school week, they sometimes, you know, athletes, other people are going to class at 10 in the morning and they're in the weight room at six in the morning. So like, why? Yeah. Why are we doing that? Stuff? And then of course, on the weekend when they allow, and, and they may have a game, the games on the weekends are, you know, if you're a better, you know, the better game, the more it's likely to be in the evening. Mm-hmm. Right? So then you're going to go, go to bed really late and then you allow yourself to sleep in on the weekends. And so with any, any sort of sports and any organization, the education has to be not just to the athlete, but also to stakeholders who help decide that schedule. Yeah. You know, and I have to tell you that sometimes coaches then there's actually studies that they are, you know, most dysfunctional sleep beliefs <laughs> about, you know, and, and it's not surprising because sleep is sort of relatively new and a lot of a lot of even physicians and athletic trainers are not aware of all the ways that this affects them. You know, for example, last year, was it last year? Yeah. So last year, the MLB winter meetings were online. And I remember I spoke to the strength and conditioning coaches. And so I gave this talk and I had like a bunch of strength and conditioning coaches call me for their sleep. Mm-hmm. Because they're, you know, so athletic trainers, these coaches, all the other people, they get there before the players. They leave after the players are done. Definitely. They leave these very unglamorous and highly stressful jobs. Do you find at all that 
I still feel like a lot of people that I know consider it a point of pride when they say, oh, I can get by on five or six hours yes. sleep. Yes. Is that evolving at all? Or do you still hear those coaches say, oh, I don't need it. The play, he doesn't need it. He can get by. He's a tough kid. He's in great shape, whatever. Right. I think, I think that it's slowly evolving for sure, let's say. And it's, there are lots of sleep scientists and doctors out there who now talk to the public. And I think it almost is, it's the other way. So sometimes they kind of scare people that the press sometimes kind of scares people about, well, if you don't get enough sleep, this is going to happen. This And yes, it is, that can happen. But then there's this group of people who have insomnia, which is difficulty sleeping and they get really stressed out about it. But there is still the culture that we have often dictates what other people are going to do. So if the head coach likes to come in at five in the morning, well, everybody else is going to feel compelled to come in at five in the morning. If the head coach or the GM sends out an email at three in the morning, well, even if he feels that he'd be okay getting a response at you know seven or eight the next morning, but the person who's on the receiving end may not you know, may feel compelled to answer at the same time because, you know, you want to make sure that you're, you're working really hard. So that's just something that, and that's a cultural change that has to come from the top. I always tell people that if I, if I could give people a pill and said, you only need one hour of sleep, people would take it like this. Oh my God. Absolutely. What was that Bradley Cooper movie? Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Whatever that was, I'll take that. Right. right. Um, I want to ask you one more question and then I'll let you, I could talk to you all day. I did a story once on the golfer, Scott Stallings, who has been yes. very public of talking about how he was overweight and he could not mm -hmm. sleep. His insomnia was terrible. And he went to the doctor and found out that he was basically in like this far from being in complete adrenal failure. Mm -hmm. So he, he, in addition to just having kind of a crappy sleep schedule, he really did have a physical problem yes. that was preventing him from sleeping. Mm -hmm. what, are the, what are some of the most common physical ailments that people might not know they have that really- I love that question. I love that question because this year there was a new sports cardiology textbook that came out and I wrote a chapter on that. Oh, awesome. sleep, dis sleep disorders <laughs> in athletes. And I have to say what we've been speaking of right now is the fact that their schedules don't allow them to sleep. But, and we typically think of athletes as being young and healthy and not having sleep disorders, but athletes, there are certain sleep disorders that they can typically have. So for example, any sport in which, especially collision sports in which it's better if you're big, mm -hmm. but I mean, your neck size is larger. That's a significant risk factor for sleep apnea, which is a disorder in which you snore and you may stop breathing. And it often goes undiagnosed because when we think of sleep apnea, typically people think of somebody being significantly overweight and, but athletes may have large necks, even if it's all muscle. That can be a, a risk factor. So if somebody is complaining of just tiredness and fatigue or a dry mouth in the morning, they should be tested for sleep apnea. The second thing is difficulty sleeping despite adequate opportunity to do so. So insomnia, especially pregame or immediately after the game is very common. And stress or anxiety because of game or, you know, the stresses that like your coaches, your, you know, your audience has on you, that can result in difficulty sleeping, especially if you're type A personality. That's something. Then circadian rhythm disorders, right? So what we talked about, so this fact that you may have difficulty sleeping if you're a night owl and you have to wake up at seven in the morning, well, you're not going to get enough sleep. So that can happen. They can have something called restless legs. And then they can have altitude sickness because 
sometimes, you know, when they're going and they're flying up to Denver just for a game, they may have sometimes they may have difficulty sleeping or even higher when they're uh, having that. So one of the things, so last year, was it last year? The year before at the, the NFL Physician Society meeting, I presented this, that all team physicians should really be regularly screening for sleep disorders, not identifying and treating it because that's not that outside their training, but at least being able to identify those players who need to be referred to a sleep doctor mm-hmm. so that, they, that these disorders can be taken care of. Because everything I just said, so everything about good sleep habits, etc., it's like, it would be like using a bandage for a fracture. Mm-hmm. If they had an actual sleep disorder, the sleep disorder must be treated for the athlete to perform well the next day. Just for a little bit of perspective, how common are sleep disorders, actual sleep disorders? Well, I think that sleep disorders are, they probably have the same, it depends on the specific sleep disorder and the specific population. So in, for example, in linebackers in the NFL, where being big yeah. is part of what, well, the likelihood of having sleep apnea is way higher. Right. In high stress games, like especially in individual sports, if they already have anxiety or depression, having insomnia associated with it becomes you know, an issue. If, a, if an athlete has problems with any sort of mental health issue, really having a sleep disorder associated with it is very, very common. In fact, you can't really talk about mental health without getting sleep health a seat at that table. Absolutely. Do you think that athletes like tennis players and golfers and boxers who really are out there by themselves, who don't have the support of a team, are sleep disorders higher in those sports? I think so. That's so, so interesting. There's, so there's been some research that says individual players as compared to team players may have poorer sleep. And it, it might be because it, you know, it is an added stress. So uh, it's, it's so different, right? I mean, the team sport is completely mm-hmm. different from an individual sport. Absolutely. This is all so fascinating. And I feel like I could talk to you for three hours and we've already been on for one hour. So I know I do have to let you go. Yes. But I so appreciate it. This is really, really fascinating. Thank Um, you. And I mean, good luck with all of these different sleep conundrums you have to uh, uh, solve. And just it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah. Thank you for, for thinking of me. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks so much to Dr. Singh for joining us for this special two-part Guru's edition of Food of the Gods. You can follow Dr. Singh on Twitter at at MD and on Instagram at at AthleteSleepMD, or you can visit her website, MeetAsingMD.com. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at FoodOfTheGodsPodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at food of the gods pod or email us at food of the gods podcast at gmail.com food of the gods is a digitant podcast production 